Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. This is episode number 34. My guest today is Dr. Louise Stanger, and she is going to talk about the opioid epidemic, and she's going to talk about the grief and loss that comes when someone loses a loved one to this epidemic. This is a pretty tough episode, and it was pretty tough to record. There was so it was almost shocking to hear some of the statistics about the opioid epidemic and how many people are impacted by what's going on with this crisis. I really appreciated Dr. Stanger's candor about how we can help individuals who have been impacted by the loss caused by this opioid epidemic. And when someone loses a loved one, how we can be there to help them and help them through that process and through that journey. And to all the families out there that have been impacted by this opioid epidemic, my heart goes out to you. May you find healing, may you find peace, and may you find growth. Okay, let's begin this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today. Her name is Dr. Louise Stanger, and she is going to talk about the opioid epidemic. And specifically, she's going to talk about the opioid deaths and the family grief. And I think this is going to be a, a tough topic to discuss, but I'm really thankful to have her on because this is such an important topic to bring up and, and talk about. Louise, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Dr. Louise Stanger. I've been a clinician since 1973. I'm an author, a trainer, and I work with families all across the globe, helping them invite their loved ones to change and to get the much-needed treatment that they need. Right. I, we were talking a, a little bit earlier, and you're also an interventionist as well. Can you talk just a little bit about that? 
as an interventionist, yes, I've been doing interventions for over 35 years. And actually, um, you, what you do not know is I have a textbook that's going to be coming out called CIS, Collective Intervention Strategies. And my passion is helping families help themselves and help them get their much needed loved ones into treatment. And so in that respect, I tend to work with really complicated family systems, um, albeit alcohol, drugs, process disorders, chronic pain, and mental health. Right. So a lot of experience kind of really working in the trenches at the beginning of, of treatment, which can be uh, pretty intense and pretty overwhelming. Definitely. But what I do believe in is that one needs to bring about systemic change and that families don't call an interventionist till their hearts are broken, till they've nagged, pleaded, scolded, begged, and they have to no avail. And so someone who is a professional clinician slash interventionist is able to help them just really create a forum for love and compassion and for an invitation to change. And that is much needed today in a world beset with so many overdoses and so many deaths due to the opioid epidemic. Right. So that's kind of why I wanted to have you on to the Addicted Mind podcast, because dealing with that is, it's such a big, it seems overwhelming with what's going on with this opioid epidemic. And and what are you seeing? Well, you know, if we're really brunt about it, there were more drug-related deaths in 2016 than the entire Vietnam War or the HIV-AIDS epidemic in its height. And for every person who has died suddenly and tragically, approximately 155 people die per day from an opioid overdose. There is at least four or more people directly affected by the loss. Oh my gosh. I mean, that statistic is just, it's almost overwhelming to think about that that is just in 2016. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's a wonderful reporter named Josh Katz who in the New York Times reported in 2016, more people under the age of 50 died from drug-related causes than cancer, war, and traffic accidents. In fact, in 2016, drug overdoses killed more Americans than the 55,000 Americans who died in car crashes in their peak in 1972, the 43,000 who died due to HIVs during the epidemic peak of 1995, or the 40,000 who died of guns during the peak of those deaths in 1993. Man, those stats really put it into perspective to really like really know how big this is as a problem. Yeah, in fact, it's it's really sad what people are saying in addition to opioid that there's 88,000 people additionally dying in the U.S. from alcohol-related causes. So when we think of what's happening in the United States, and I, I do think it's a pandemic and not an epidemic, is we have really a losing trifecta between opioid overdoses, alcohol-related um, deaths, and I think we're going to be seeing drug driving meaning a lot of marijuana-related crashes as, as we continue to legalize in states. But I think my heart really hurts so much, and that's for the families. Yeah. So what can, because that was what we were going to talk about today, these deaths are, there's so many and they're so shocking. What do you see? Well, 
one of my areas of expertise is sudden death. And let's just try and unpack a little bit about what happens. One, there is little academic research on the subject. Death from overdose, like death of a SIDS baby, occurs outside of hospital rooms and occurs in homes, in friends' houses, on couches, in bedrooms, in bathrooms, on pavements, in hotels. These are not places where research normally takes place. There also, unfortunately, is a stigma attached to addiction. I I still marvel over the fact that addiction is a disease that in March 2011, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, thank God we have them, really clearly identifies addiction as being a brain disease that changes the neuroplasticity of the brain, changes emotional, physiological, psychological things, and as such can be reversed. But nonetheless, many people still see addiction as a stigma and that the person who died was not strong enough nor good enough to stop abusing drugs. Also, unintentional injuries, homicides, and other indirectly related incidents can incur from drug use. Three, for families, and I really, my heart goes out to families and to loved ones, the stigma transcends into thinking somehow or other, I did not do enough. I am a failure for letting this happen. Shame, prejudice, and isolation are common emotions. If one goes as a family to the bereaved, if they were attending perhaps a 12-step group like Al-Anon or Families Anonymous or CODA, they might feel inadequate when they to reattend those. And ironically, funeral directors, people in the morgue, are often the ones that must help guide these families for with their loved one who is overdosed. They're really the first people that they get to talk to. I'm I'm almost like all of the what you're saying is is almost so overwhelming to to just hear what you're saying and the tragedy that comes with that and then that judgment that we still have about addiction as this moral failing of some kind just adds to that tragedy. Yes, it does. And for us, we really have to remember that grief has a number of drivers that that just push it forward. You're going to, sometimes people will feel guilt. I didn't do enough. It's my fault. There may be some kind of relief now that they don't have to worry about that person anymore. Shame over having a family history of addiction or mental health and and that they somehow or other through DNA transmitted it. You might also see families and they feel as, it's all my fault. I did too much. I always bailed him or her out. I didn't let them experience the consequences of their behavior. And you might not feel that you're worthy enough to mourn. When we look at the research, there was some research done on blame and families whose loved ones had died of a drug overdose, alcohol or other drug overdose, as well as suicide. They feel a greater degree of blame than other family than other families. And they tend to interject self-blame and blame might also be thrown out. To the person that died. But at the same time, these families might isolate. Like, I'm embarrassed to go 
anywhere. Sometimes when death happens, sometimes you feel like as if someone can read you from the inside out. They know that you're different. They know that you've experienced a loss. But then again, the the respondent or the friend, the friend doesn't really know what to say. Sometimes our society doesn't feel we have a right to grieve. For example, a a, a woman who miscarries her child or has a SIDS death is told right away that she could have another child. And sometimes or other, that's not the right thing to say. That is not, people don't have, that's called disenfranchised grief. Or the father who's told he's not worth your tears. In general, sometimes, oftentimes our society says, you're not entitled to grieve, and yet these people must grieve. And then, for example, families that experience this kind of death, they might have anxiety, they might have direction, they might not be able to sleep. And really, I believe that the behavioral health care professional has a duty, a duty of care with this particular population. You're not going to find them in treatment centers. You're not going to find them anywhere. But yet we have a duty to provide a forum so that people who have lost ones from addiction have a place to grieve. Right. And it, it sounds like, you know, as you're talking about this, this, and definitely myself having some personal grief like this of a loss of a of my own daughter, I definitely understand a lot what you're saying. And the complexity of grief is, I don't know how else to say it, but it's just so complex. There's so many sides of it. There really is. And the thing is, people grieve in very, very different ways. People do not grieve the same way. And how we do it, some people will not shed a tear in the beginning, will busy themselves with, in fact, there's a big rush to busy themselves with everyday activities of planning a funeral, of figuring out a memorial, of doing whatever it is their culture says. And it's only in the aftermath of grief do people start to feel a sort of a loss or they walk down the street, They there, there are so many signs or memories of their loved one that they suddenly become clouded up with memories, with thoughts. And it's really important for people to understand that in the beginning, if you're a neighbor or a friend, in the hubbub of activity, bring the food, take the other children out, help with um, some schoolwork. But really, it becomes very critical and pivotal about three weeks out in the grieving process. When everybody seems to disappear, everyone goes back to their daily lives. That's sometimes when the family member needs your help the most. It's your time for them to have them say, hey, would you like to go here? Hey, would you like to hear? Go there. Do you want some help in packing away clothes? What just being very proactive in doing it. Not all people become there's a clinical term depression and then there's and and then there is just normal, what I call normal non-pathological depression, which comes along with grieving. Somehow or other, it's been described as suddenly a wave overtakes you and you feel as if you were just hit by a tidal wave and then tears start flowing through you. 
And sometimes you feel almost as if you're going crazy, but the truth is you're not. And the truth is that it's really good to have another person um, to speak with, whether you do that because we're so technologically advanced um, on a chat room or you go to a grief group that is specifically designed for parents whose loved ones have died from addiction. It's very specific. So I think I do. You know, what I think really is important is for, well, I think behavioral health care professionals need to be visible and vocal and develop something, develop places where people can actually get help. This is not anything that is not an important issue. It's not anything that we need to delegate just to just to funeral directors and funeral homes and cemeteries. This is something that we can work with if we want to work through faith-based groups, whether we want to join together, even have treatment centers say, hey, you know what, we're going to offer a grief group. We're going to do it online, um, which can be very successful to do. But we want to understand that we want to acknowledge and affirm that the family member whose loved one died of an overdose has every right to grieve as much as someone as, as much as someone else, but that they may grieve differently. And I think that's so important. When I going through some of my own grief, when we lost our week old uh, baby, there was a long time where that grief, we, we needed to do it our own way. I don't know how else to explain it. And you're, what you're talking about resonates so much with me because of that personal experience of how complex grief is and how we just need the room to be able to kind of walk through that process and, and to be able to talk about it or to find people who understand the type of grief you're in. Dwayne, I don't know if you're aware of it or you haven't maybe had the opportunity yet to read my book, Falling Up, which is a memoir. But if you read that, my interest in this arena comes from the fact that I had five sudden deaths in my lifetime. Amongst them was, since you talked about an infant dying, my third child was a a boy and died at three months of sudden infant death syndrome. And so I know all too well what happens when someone dies suddenly and tragically. Again, I invite you to read my book. It's Um, I'm definitely gonna I'm definitely gonna check that out. It starts off also with my father, who unfortunately followed in his mother and father's footsteps. And when I was seven, um, he had mental health and addiction issues, and he took his own life by hanging himself. So I've had five sudden deaths in my own lifetime. And I feel that in addition to doing research in the area, to addition to having a practice where I work with families um, exclusively, that I can feel like I have knowledge based not only on professionalism, but also on experience. And I think what's so important when we think about things are different people grieve in different ways and and that the, and that meet that means that we if we're going to deal with this 
I think, believe we have to be able to seek wise counsel. Definitely. There is someone wiser than us at that moment in time. I often talk about our friends being our marble jar people, which is a term of Brene Brown. But oftentimes, sometimes our marble jar people will change due to a death. And it's not because you did anything wrong. It's just because they just no longer how know how to deal with that. I also think that seeking wise counsel is really important. And then hospital staffs and coroner's offices and policemen have to be well-trained in how do I approach a family and tell them that their loved one has overdosed and died. As far as the bereaved, I think that it's, it's good to follow whatever your custom is. If it's a church service, if it's sitting shiva, if you're Jewish, planting prayer flags at the side of a mountain or another celebration, if you have a, a, a way, a cultural way to do something, do it. And I have seen across the country that there have been GoFundMe sites or local funeral directors that might know of scholarships if you cannot afford to do that. Sometimes in the beginning, calls, mail, visitors, it seems overwhelming. There's almost like a cornucopia of people that come. And then there's that silence. Absolutely. And I can totally relate to to what you're saying. I mean, that was definitely my experience as well. And uh, we were very lucky. There was a lot of support where we were at the hospital when all of this happened and and I really it really set us out on the right foot towards towards healing even though it was very very difficult for a long time but um, these things are so critical and I can't imagine how these how parents or siblings aunts uncles all these people impacted losing someone they love to this disease so oh man you wanted to say so it doesn't have to happen well, no, I mean, you don't want, no one I have ever met in my entire life, let me be really clear, said, hey, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be an alcoholic. I want to be an addict. I want to have a mental health disorder. And one day I want to overdose. Yeah. I don't believe that. And yet in the wake, a opioid fueled global issue in the wake of continual drug use and also continual production of uh, more and more substances, we are finding ourselves in the midst of an epidemic. And we're working on one hand to stop that. On the other hand, we have to be recognized that overdoses, death by alcohol-related incidences affect all of us. And that if we don't join in some communal way to help, number one, help the families that experience this loss. Number two, work to be visible, vocal, and visionary in terms of the, of the programs we create and make them accessible and affordable to, every, to all people, all persons, all walks of lives. Then we will really have softly killing fields of everyone. Yeah, definitely. Wow, I mean, my heart just goes out as you're as you're talking about this. My heart just goes out to these families and to, uh, you know what they're going through. But yeah, we have to offer that support and to be there and to to walk with them in whatever way they they need us to walk with them. 
as they go through this journey. I mean, it's, it is, it is, I think this is, is it's a tragedy. If I could give any suggestions for people who are related to friends with or anything, let me invite you to be present with those, with those families that are experiencing a loss. Visit or spend time. Be available for that phone call in the middle of the night. Respond promptly to emails or texts. Send notes. Bring food in the flurry of activities. Take other children to school. Go shopping with the person. Help them reintegrate with daily life, daily activities of living. Listen. Yeah, I think that that is the best thing. I would say the same thing, just to be present, someone to just be present not with any kind of agenda, but to just be there is sometimes the most healing component. And you have to really be able to listen with your heart. Yeah. That means to respond and not to react. People, when they experience grief, sometimes are what we might call highly labeled. They talk, they rattle on and on. Stay neutral. Your job is to listen. Listen. And not to take the person who died down, not to bash them. Anger, tears, disbelief, numbness are common emotions. Your task is to accept your friend's feelings, not really to comment on the efficacy of them, but rather to affirm them that they're willing to have them. Yeah, I think that is just really well said. What about, we're talking about like what family can family can do, but what about the person themselves who are experiencing this? The mom or the dad or the brother or sister or uncle or aunt? Well, I think that the mom or dad or the brother or sister, I mean, I would invite them all to call me. My phone is always available and yet there's way too many for them just to only call me. But I would encourage them to speak and I and to check out what resources there are. Not all people like going to uh, grief groups, okay? Right. Not all people like a group. Where can they go where there are other families that may have experienced something similar? Where do we find people that can help them, guide them on their way? Perhaps there might be someone in Al-Anon because they were an active member of Al-Anon that they feel really comfortable in reaching out. I think the other thing is that they know that this experience, that they too can rise strong again, that this is a process. It takes time. If they need to seek professional help or professional counseling, by all means, do that. I will say one thing, and I don't know if this will be controversial or not. Oftentimes, if you rush to your doctor, a physician is not someone, sometimes they might perceive you as being depressed and they might offer you a pill or two. For the most part, grief is not a grief or the depression that one feels at the onset of a death is normal and not pathological. Yeah. If, however, you find six months from now, you haven't put anyone's clothes away, you're not getting up out of bed, you're not taking care of yourself or even three months away, then there does need to be some type of professional intervention. Yeah, I would definitely understand that. And and that grief is a, 
it's a slow process. No. And so you, I mean, encourage self-care, check in on someone. And then the other thing is just walking by their side. That sounds so easy and yet it's so challenging to do. I think, yeah, that's that's so true. And, I, you know, having had some time to go through my own grief and talking to people who were there with me through that, we really got to share with them at a better place to really how difficult it was for them to just be there. And we talk about that now because it's, it's, it's farther behind us and done a lot of grieving about it. But um, it made me realize like, just how difficult it is to be that support person when that other person has such a huge grief. That's right. And everybody, there's no, the perception of pain, the perception of loss is within the person. And it's clouded with how much they cared about them, how angry would they might have been with them, because it's perfectly legitimate to be angry with somebody for dying. Like, why'd you do that? Yeah. It's perfectly yeah. legitimate to say, hey, why did this happen to me? Why did such a bad thing happen to such a good person? Yep. These are all perfectly legitimate kinds of feelings. But you as the outsider or you or and the other thing is sometimes when you're grieving, you don't always ask for help because you're so closed up inside yourself. And that's why I think it's so important for people to know, to be able to help with practicalities, everything from babysitting to packing up clothes, to meal preparation, to going for a walk, to fixing the, lo- the, the broken lock on the door, to doing a household chair, helping with repairs, yeah. showing some sort of support, because not everybody can do everything. They, they can be left with things that are beyond their comprehension. Definitely. Or their yeah. skill set. Well, Louise, I, I just want to thank you for coming on and um, sharing this information on, on the Addicted Mind podcast and, and to be a part of it. I, I think it's so important that this message get out there. What, you know, if there was anything else you'd want to want to add to this, what what would you say? Well, I would like to add that ultimately love in the midst of this global crisis of addiction means taking care of yourself, means learning about mental health and addiction, means trying to intervene if possible with your loved one who is experiencing that. I doubt and there there have been few of us who have not been touched by sudden death from addiction or mental health in some way or another. And really, to my fellow behavioral health care providers and addiction and mental health specialists, I invite you, I really do, to think outside the box and create services for families that have had a loved one die of an overdose or an accident occurring because of a substance abuse of mental health disorder. I urge you to do that because I believe that we have an ethical obligation to think beyond and to provide services that allow people to grieve, to revisit, and to write a new story so that they can carry forth and become the mom, the dad, the brother, the sister, the husband and wife they were meant to be. 
And Duane, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of your podcast, to be a part of a movement which you have created to allow others to hear important voices and thought leaders in the field. So thank you so much and keep doing what you're doing. Keep inspiring change. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for saying. So how, how can people get a hold of you if they want more information and how can they reach you? Oh, thanks so much for asking, Dwayne. Well, they can get a hold of me by calling 619-507-1699. They can, I have a host, a cornucopia of materials on my website, which is www.allaboutinterventions.com. Or they could just Google my name, which is Louise, L-O-U-I-S-E, Stanger, S-T-A-N-G-E-R. All right. And I will put that all in the show notes for everybody. That's going to be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 34. So all of that information will be there as well. Louise, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your wisdom. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity and bless you for doing this. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast today. I really appreciate it. Once again, all the information will be on the website at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 34. If you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us exposure and helps get this information out to others. Also, if you have any thoughts about this episode, please go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash 34. You can ask any questions or give your opinions or your experiences right at the bottom of the blog and you can put a comment there. I would love to hear from everyone out there who has been impacted by the opioid epidemic. And uh, if you like, you can share your story there. I'd really appreciate that. So take care and I will see you all next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.